Listeners, it's Sam here again, and just the usual shout out for our brilliant sponsors before this week's show. Paces Ahead have courses for the start of 2024, and listeners, here's a possible sweetener for you. I will be there at their first course of 2024. That's the 16th to the 19th of January. Please do come along and say hi if you catch me. It would be great to meet some of you if you're there. But there is also a course the following week from the 20th to the 23rd of January for those of you sitting in the first diet of 2024. Not only that, but they also have courses lined up for May as well. The 20th to the 23rd of May and the 28th to the 31st of May. I highly recommend booking on early to avoid disappointment. They very regularly get oversubscribed. If you can't make a course though, past tests have got you covered with their market-leading online revision paces resource. I think most pacer sitters would agree this is more or less essential to have to complement your ward-based preparation. So to get access, just click any of the links in the show notes labelled past test. But enough on that for now, let's get started on this week's episode. Welcome listeners to the fantastic finish to this second part of our double header on hemiparesis with Dr. Paul Sellers, a consultant in stroke medicine at Southmead Hospital in Bristol. Paul and I finished discussing the examination of our patient with hemiparesis, then as usual we discuss all the important investigations, management, how to present your patient as well as covering the all important examiner questions. And at the end of the show, Paul is challenged on his brilliant quiz the consultant topic of Metallica. And lastly, the legend list grows ever longer over on our Buy Me A Coffee page. This week, we have Saab and Mahima Charan to thank for their generous donations to keep the show running. I'm so, so grateful to you guys for your generosity, which keeps the show running and drives me on to make more episodes. But for now, let's get stuck into this week's episode with Dr. Paul Sellers, where we pick up where we left off about halfway through our neurological examination. So moving on from reflexes, I mean, sensation is the next thing which we would normally talk about. And I don't want to maybe spend too much time on this because it is pretty much just a case of systematic examination, but just make sure you are doing all the modalities. And the other thing which we should say at this point is the neurological examination and paces, you may not get to the end, especially if there are signs to be found, or for example, you're having to reinforce reflexes, which we didn't even talk about when we were talking about reflexes, but reinforcement. So asking them to grit their teeth or pull their hands together. It's, uh, you may not get to the end. And I think most of the time that is acceptable as long as you then say to the examiner, when it comes to the discussion to complete my examination, I would examine proprioception, light touch, etc. But making sure we're doing joint position sense, proprioception, distally, making sure we're obviously doing light touch and pinprick sensation. I would probably offer to do temperature sensation, but... in in So I guess, again, the slight divergence, but actually one of the big ones, so proprioception and uh, all those bits are not that relevant in stroke, but actually the pain temperature one is. Um, 
So that that is one that so there's certainly posterior strokes that that is a particular sign where they get a cross sign of of pain and temperature often with a symptom that they've they've found that tea feels funny when they put it in their mouth because they've got this loss of loss of temperature. So actually, in terms of the stroke, yes, in terms of paces, it probably is an offer, mm. but just an awareness that actually that is one of the few things I do do in more routine clinical practice. If I'm thinking posterior stroke is actually fill up a rubber glove with water to, to test temperature. So that is one of the actual paces things that often gets missed that actually is more relevant for clinical practice. So don't forget to bring your rubber glove filled with water to the, to the exam. <laughs> carry it around the respiratory and gastro and history taking just in case yeah. <laughs> the, the last thing which goes with our con- conventional neurological examination is coordination and paul you mentioned before posterior circulation strokes are probably a conversation for another day but it's still important to be uh, complete with your examination and perform the finger nose tests test for dysdiadokinesia and the heel shin test if it's a lower limb examination. But we're not going to dwell on those today because it is more uh, associated with either a posterior stroke, uh, which would produce a cerebellar syndrome type picture. And it is on our list of uh, stations to cover a cerebellar syndrome. So do look out for it. It's coming sometime, hopefully soon. I don't know. I haven't found a guest yet, but we will be covering that at some point soon. And for that reason, we're going to sort of skip over coordination. But as, as an additional bit, and this is where we come to a bit of clinical crossover, because this is something which you're probably unlikely to have time to do uh, through the course of a conventional neurological examination. But um, examination of cortical function in patients with stroke is really important. So, Paul, I wonder if you can just run through what sort of elements of cortical function are important for us to examine uh, in our patients in, in our day to day clinical practice. So it's, yeah, it's, I mean, it's tricky, isn't it? Because you, you may not get time, but like I said at the beginning, see if you can get some freebies with the, the neglect, the speech, even uh, testing sort of heavy and open if they're, if they're not sort of clearly acknowledging one side. So sometimes neglect is very obvious and sometimes they've literally got their head turned over to the right and not really acknowledging the left at all. And I think that is worth remarking on. You probably won't have time if you do, I guess it's about trying to get the biggest bang for your buck. So making sure that in this order, so if they have right-sided weakness, you're examining speech next. If they got left-sided weakness, you're examining neglect next, and then do fields. And I think it's about just trying to do that. So in terms of speech, you just want them to either name something, or you can just ask them for some fluent speech like what they've had for breakfast or something like that. You're just trying to get some some speech and some very classic aphasia symptoms are things like uh, phonemic substitutions and semantic substitutions. So that's where either sound-alike words are being used or words that have a similar meaning, so using table rather than chair or something that sounds similar. And if you pick those up, then you know it's definitely not confusion. It's definitely aphasias that you're seeing. In terms of neglect, what you're trying to uh, trying to demonstrate, so there's lots of different tests we can use for neglect. We've got lines that you can draw and star charts that you start marking and all kinds of things. Sometimes it's really obvious, but the main sort of confrontation tests are checking fields. So can you see my left finger? Can you see my right finger? Yes, yes. Then wiggle both of them and someone with neglect would just see your right finger. Same with sensation. Can you feel my left? Can you feel my right? Both together. 
it'll only feel the right side. So that's how you would test it in a quick clinical or certainly how we would do it in, in the sort of an IHSS scoring. So that's your sort of quick test for it. But just being aware there are other tests. So there's a line drawing where you try and mark middle. And if you've got neglect, you'll be nowhere near the middle. You'll be right over the right side. There's star crossing where you've got to cross out all the different stars. And if you have neglect, you'll just ignore all the ones on the, uh, on the left side. Um, and then well, one, one of the other ones is drawing a clock face, I think. And they'll, yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, it's neglect is an absolutely fascinating problem and it, it really is. It's so hard. Some people don't even realize they've, they've got hemiparesis and they think they can just walk. They just do not appreciate that, that side it is, it is, a. Uh, especially when we're coming to sort of rehab and the practical implications of that sign, it, it becomes really challenging. But yes, there are lots of different tests that you can use. And I think it's just being aware of some of them. But if you've really got that last 30 seconds before the clocks run out, is just going for the one that you can say, this is definitely cortical. And as soon as you've picked up that cortical sign, all the other sort of differentials like MS start to become a lot less likely. And you've almost, you, you know, you've got it on the nail on the head then. Yeah, fantastic. And so really important just to say you would add in any of the bits of the examination you didn't quite manage to finish. Also mentioning you would like to perform a full cranial nerve examination because we've mainly been talking about the peripheral nerve examination. Uh, and if you are suspecting a stroke, then it's really important to just justify that as well and make it really clear to the examiner. So rather than just saying, oh, you know, I'd like to perform a full cranial nerve, say, I'd like to perform a full cranial nerve examination, paying particular attention to field defects such as homonymous hemianopia and a full cortical assessment uh, looking for neglect, etc. So really important just to go further with that. And then after that, you'll be expected to uh, present back your findings to the examiner. I guess the main thing with this, Paul, is just to make it clear exactly what findings you are disclosing and making sure they are consistent with the specific diagnosis which you are suggesting. Agreed. And like we said before, is just making sure you're not trying to shoehorn things that aren't there into the box. So essentially, on a base level, what you want to do is line up all the things that are uppermost in your own. And then once that, you're then trying to say whether it's spine or brain. So it's trying to think in your brain when you're presenting, I want to line up all my findings to say that it's uppermost in your own. And I want to prove whether it's brain or spine, which is essentially whether it's one side. And if it's involving the face, then you definitely know that it's brain if it's one side and face. And then to really hammer it, you want to try and get that cortical sign to localize it in the area of the brain. And I guess that's how your presentation has to go. It's one, showing that it's a promote neuron, two, localizing it away from spine to brain, and then three, saying if you can say it's actually a sort of stroke or space-occupying lesion, because once you get that far, there's very few things that it can be past that. Yeah, fantastic. And then usually the next thing after that will be your differential diagnosis for hemiparesis. So, and, and again, this is the bit where it starts to become slightly sort of convoluted, as we know the paces can be, because by and large, you're going to have walked in with, and with, hopefully within the first couple of minutes, you've said, aha, this is a patient who's had a stroke, but you're still going to have to regurgitate all the possible differential diagnoses and, and expand upon those if required. So, Paul, when we talk about strokes, we also end up talking about stroke mimics. 
yeah. what are the most common stroke mimics or what are the important elements mm. of discussing the differential diagnosis should our listeners be doing? Oh, well, this is really tricky, Sam. So the problem is, is a stroke presents not in an upper motor neurone fashion. It presents in a flaccid paresis. So the differentials for an acute stroke are actually slightly different from the differentials from someone who you've just proven an upper motor neurone sign. And I think you've just got to be slightly careful that you don't fall into that trap. So actually, if you have shown and you've just presented an upper motor neurone sign that is localized to the brain, it is really stroke, space-occupying lesion, or MS. There's probably some chicken's teeth in there that I haven't mentioned, but they're the main three that you need to mention. If you start mentioning migraine and seizures, you've kind of, whilst that's a differential for an acute stroke, they would not present with with necessarily high tone. So a tosparesis and a migraine, which are our most common stroke mimics, would not present with someone with flexure, posturing, and clonus and increased reflexes. So I guess you've got to kind of go with how, what you've examined or even mention to the examiner in the acute setting where high tone may not be visible that the other differentials that commonly mimic these findings are migraine and um, seizure. But I wouldn't say those if you've just gone on and perfectly presented an upper motor in your own case because you'd be sort of showing that you don't really understand what those signs would mean. Yeah, absolutely fantastic. That's really, really critical point to make, actually, because I think a lot a lot of people who revise revise this for paces probably would just, you know, they'd probably chuck it in when they're talking about hemi or revising for hemipresis. They would just say, oh, yeah, you know, tospresis, hemiplegic migraine. Yep, they cause u- unilateral limb weakness, which, as you say, is correct in the acute setting, but we are probably finding signs of someone who's had a chronic deficit. So, yeah, absolutely fantastic. And actually, I think what you should expand is your is your differential of the two big things that cause strokes. Rather than just saying stroke, it's like ischemic, which can be thrombotic from a lacuna stroke, can be embolic from AF carotid disease or a, a, you know ventricular thrombus, or it can be hemorrhagic. The most common being hypertensive or cerebral amyloid angiopathy or a AV malformation and sort of expand in those bits rather than the bits that don't make sense with the findings you've just presented. Yeah, fantastic. And so after presenting your differentials, you're going to move on to investigating these patients. And as usual in paces, you're going to have to present the most basic investigations first, but also make your way pretty swiftly through the most pertinent things uh, which you would perform on these patients. Whether And again, you may have to caveat this depending on, in, in reality, most likely, I would expect you to say, something like, well, in the acute setting, the the investigations would be very different from this patient in front of me. So, and and caveat it with that we are managing someone with an acute uh, suspected stroke. So if we talk about uh, some of the usual workup for the patients you see on a day-to-day basis, Paul, um, I guess the first thing is going to be simple bedside investigations. Yeah. And I think just going back to what you were saying, Sam, I think that's a really important point. So I was debating this with a PACES examiner today about what you should say in this. If you if you think it's a stroke, how you should do it. And I, I really think, that especially with the, the sort of strong emphasis and the emerging sort of thrombectomy thing, you really do need to say that in the acute setting, I would assess medical stability in an ABCD fashion perform an NIHSS and request an urgent CT and CTA. 
and call the thrombolysis team or hyperacute team. I think that needs to be a sentence at the beginning of something like this, because otherwise it's not showing awareness and sort of understanding of real world settings and then go on to the the Pacers diatribe. But I think that sentence is actually really important. And so then, yes, you've got your bedside. So, so you'd want your, your full set of bloods, your FBC use and ease, but also you'd want cardiac risk factors, including cholesterol and HbA1c. You may or may not want a urine dip for glucose or if you're thinking vasculitis, blood and protein. And you'd want a, a BM. So they're all the bits that are there. You'd want the ECG mainly looking for AF. And then you're talking about your sort of stroke-specific investigations, which the main two are the ECG that we've already said, the carotid Dopplers, and also you would need the, sorry, completely mentioned, <laughs> got so focused on all of this that I forgot the, the main bit that you would want the CT head <laughs> to talk about the, the blood or lack of blood to decide on thrombolysis, thrombectomy. And if they are eligible for thrombectomy, we would also perform a CTA at that point. And I think, again, just sort of showing that awareness that if, again, you could say, if you, sorry, I sort of did that in the wrong order, but you do your, bl- your blood tests and then other tests would be imaging, which is the CT, CTA. And then also when you're going on to saying, and then I'd want to do the 24-hour tapes or seven-day tapes or Zio patches or whatever we are doing to try and detect AF, that you would not need the carotid Dopplers if you've already had the CTA during the thrombectomy setting, just that sort of awareness that you've been in clinical medicine and things like that. And then the echo in a young patient or embolic stroke. And then depending on the age of the patient would dictate the next set of investigations that you would want to order. Yeah, I I have to say, I absolutely love that first uh, snippet that you just said there, the, the, the sort of 30 seconds caveat to the presentation you've just examined. I absolutely love that. So that's definitely worth uh, bearing in mind. So yeah, absolutely love that because it is different to, this is one of the situations where paces and what we see in clinical practice is so different. So yeah, really, really important. And I guess the next thing which we're going to have to talk about is uh, a management obviously of, of, of our patient. And so again, if we're being comprehensive about it, you're going to want to essentially go through the broad brushstrokes of, of managing these patients. And as we'll come to talk about in the acute setting, there are more and more interventional options for us in managing acute stroke, depending, of course, on availability locally and regionally. But in reality, the examiners are going to want to hear uh, almost a similar diatribe, as you said, but there are some important principles to, to, to management. So, Paul, what, what should our listeners be leading out with when the examiners expect you to talk about the management in the acute phase of these patients? So if you haven't already mentioned it at the beginning, the absolutely most essential bit in terms of management and would almost be a failed pass, I would say, in this sort of patient, that if you are seeing this in the acute setting, you would want to check whether they are eligible for thrombolysis or thrombectomy, which is a four and a half window or a 24 hour window, respectively. And you would want to make sure they are medically stable, score their NIHSS and call the, the thrombolysis team based on local protocols. And I think that has to be 
top of your management list because it's a time precious problem that the longer you leave it and start messing around with whether to give them their aspirin prng or po or anything it starts to become completely meaningless because you've got a treatment that really makes a big difference so i think it so it shows sort of good awareness of of clinical practice and experience within this country that you've really got to mention that and then it's going through all the other bits so you'd want to do your so in ischemic stroke you'd want to manage their so antithrombotic which would be aspirin 300 for two weeks and then clopidogrel or anticoagulation depending on whether you detect af or not um in the hemorrhagic stroke if they're presenting under the six hour mark you'd want to manage their blood pressure with a target between 140 and 150 and then long-term wanting to manage their blood pressure, you would want to manage cardiovascular risk factors, including cholesterol, diabetes, hypertension, some of which can only be managed in the more chronic setting. And I think it's you don't necessarily need to give the timeframes. It's just more numbers that you have to remember that you may not have the brain space for, but just to be aware that there's you can't start managing the blood pressure in the acute setting. Um, and then the other thing you would want a swallow assessment, which is usually a swallow screen based on local protocols, and then you would consider NG insertion depending on severity and acuity of the case, and you would want to make sure that there's a full therapy assessment, both from a mobility, nutrition, and swallowing perspective. And I think they're the main bits. And then thinking about VT prophylaxis with either, um, well, we, do, we never use Clexane or TEDS, uh, we either use IPCs or there is a new device coming in, which may show that you're a bit flashy called a gecko, which is like a little electronic sort of um, it's like those things, you know, when you used to sh- in the joke boxes where you used to get the little thing, the way you'd shake the hand and it'd give you an electric shock when you shook the hand. <laughs> right, like that, okay. That sits on the back of the car that starts tensing their car. So you'd either want to VT with IPCs or, or what's called a gecko. Nice. Uh, and and, and yeah, IPCs, we should just say, is intermittent pneumatic compression. Yeah. Not TEDS. Not TEDS. Yeah, a really TEDS. important. They're a big difference. And just one last thing, which I think is more in the chronic phase when they're uh, discharged, and obviously depending on their function after the event, is that there's no driving for four weeks after a stroke. Yeah, and, and I think that's probably just worth having a little list. I think I did just have a little list of, of the sort of things that you might say is a sort of chronic management. Hang on, that, well, what did I say? Oh, yeah, so I guess in terms of sort of chronic management, you'd be like wanting to think about driving. You'd also want to be thinking about spasticity. You'd want to be thinking about high tone, which you would initially manage with therapy and splints and based on a standardized uh, scoring system would want to consider for Botox, may consider more systematic drugs like baclofen and things, but we rarely use those anymore. You'd want to make sure you're titrating cardiac risk factors based on results. You'd want to ensure that there was follow-up of ECGs and carotid dopplers. You'd want to ensure that cognition was assessed with a mocker and that they'd had a mood screen. You'd want to address their fatigue and you'd want to think about their job, their driving and their visual fields. And I guess that is if you're actually saying this patient has arrived and I am assessing them with a chronic weakness, they're actually the things that you would investigate is all of those things in terms of sort of chronic stroke management. Yeah, fantastic. And so 
that will wrap up. You know, you've only got the four minutes and you'll have to do your differentials, your investigations and your management. So you may not even get a chance to talk about all of that. And fingers fingers crossed you've gone through as much of that as possible. So you may not even have that much time for what we what we usually term the examiner questions, which we always like to try and cover sometime towards the end of the show. And so uh, there were only a couple of these, Paul, and one of, one of them you sort of mentioned already is how would the investigations change if or what additional investigations would you request if it is a particularly young patient presenting with a confirmed stroke? So I guess the first thing is defining what young is. So young in stroke is considered under 55. That's usually quite a standard terminology for what's considered young stroke. And in terms of the investigations that you'd want to be thinking about, so essentially you're trying to think of unusual thrombosis or vasculitis. So if you can think of it in those sort of broad categories, that's essentially what you're testing for. I mean, there's different layers, but the first screen is a blood test for vasculitic screen, a blood test for uh, antiphospholipid or acquired thrombophilias. Um, And then the other things that we also look for is in the under 55 bracket, we would also look as a bubble echo at five weeks but I think, again, it's just also worth acknowledging with your investigations, they may ask you, when would you perform an MRI? An MRI is for young patients, because often we won't close the PFO unless there's a confirmed embolus on MRI. And an MRI is for cases where it's not a confirmed stroke. So we didn't do an MRI on everyone. It's for those two situations, usually. And they would really be your sort of, there are lots of other tests you can do, but they're your main sort of ones for for young strokes. Yeah, fantastic. And I don't want to finish the, this discussion on a rather bleak note, but the next thing was what are the possible complications of suffering a stroke? We could talk for at least another hour about each of all of these. And this is where stroke gets really interesting, Sam. I mean, yeah, there are there are lots. And I guess it's trying to sort of segregate them in, in whatever way your brain works. I sort of look at sort of anatomy. So you're thinking about brain complications. So the biggest things are swelling, blood and clots again, which is essentially all stroke medicine is, plus a bit of electricity. So you're thinking about swelling in terms of malignant MCA syndrome, where you may want to do a hemicraniectomy. You're thinking about hemorrhagic transformation. You're thinking about repeat infarcts. You're thinking about seizures. There are the main sort of um, cranial or brain events that may happen. I guess with bleeds, it's also about thinking about intraventricular extension and hydrocephalus can be a complication. And then you're really thinking about sort of stroke-specific medical complications. So you're thinking about things like with your swallowing problems, aspiration. You're thinking about continence. You're thinking about uh, high tone and problems with um, pain and management of the high tone. You're thinking about sublux shoulders. Um, those are the sort of things. And then you've got all the other medical things, so PEs, DVTs, because you may not be able to use the same that you may want to use. You're thinking about GI bleeds, falls, delirium, all the sort of geriatric sort of core elements. That's how I would split it up. But I think it's just whatever your brain, whatever your brain thinks and however it digests things is how you would split those up. You could do it as an immediate, medium term or long term as well. Yeah, fantastic. And I guess it would only, the only difference it would make really is just demonstrating that you're, you have some sort of system of thinking about these things so the other thing I should say is that we 
there there are several significant things which we haven't discussed today, which number one is thrombolysis. Number two is thrombectomy. We haven't discussed posterior strokes very much. We haven't talked about uh, blood sugar management. We haven't talked about blood pressure management. But fingers crossed, some point soon, we'll be getting Paul back to discuss all of those in another episode. So just to say that whilst we've talked a lot about management, there are some pretty significant things which we haven't talked about. So look forward to that. But that concludes our discussion on hemiparesis and management of stroke. So now it's time for our regular feature, which is Quiz the Consultant. Just a quick nod to our podcast sponsors, Past Test, who have a huge back catalogue of revision videos on their online revision resource. Not only that, but they also have videos specific to examining a patient with hemiparesis in a neurology station to complement your learning from this episode of the show. So to get access, just click the link to pastest.com in the show notes. It's time for the greatest regular non-medical quiz to feature on a medical podcast. It's Quiz the Consultant. So welcome to our regular feature, Quiz the Consultant, the quiz where our bosses take on a specialist subject of their own choosing, with the caveat that it can't be related to medicine. And Paul, you mentioned at the top of the show, but what have you chosen as your specialist subject and why have you chosen it? I've chosen Metallica as a childhood love and it made me listen to some albums I haven't listened to since I was 14 or 15 in preparation for this. And and I have to say the most nerve-wracking part of doing this podcast, Sam. (laughs) (laughs) Well, there's nothing to be concerned about, but I have to say I I absolutely love, as as a non-metal head myself, I'm always open to new experiences and even just looking at probably... I recognised a few of the more uh, popular songs on their Spotify, but you know it's a whole world which I, I appreciate. You can get you can get a real uh, kick out of, and you can take a really deep dive if you're so inclined. Right, so Paul, this is how we play. There are ten questions. You can get two points if you answer without the multiple choice options, or you can take the four multiple choice options. And if you get it right, then it's just one point. So there's twenty points up for grabs. So, question number one. Who is the frontman and vocalist for Metallica since they formed in 1983? That would be a James Hetfield, a lovely bearded man. <laughs> and he is on the board for two points. Correct. James Hetfield. Question number two. What is the name of Metallica's official fan club? <laughs> uh, oh, I'm going to... No, I'll take your multiple choice, actually. Take the multiple choice, sure. Is the is the fan club known as the Metallicans, the Met fans, the Metronomes, or the Met Club? <laughs> God, none of those are a good a good name, are they? I can't remember all the options. I'll take the first one, whatever that was. That was the Metallicans, but it is unfortunately it's the Met Club. Met Club. Yeah, bizarre. Next one, question number three: Which of the following songs? is the most played of Metallica's on Spotify. 
So again, Paul, you might be thinking this is... Uh... I think I could do this without multiple choice, Sam. I think I might know this one. Or are you going to okay. give me multiple choice? I'll anyway? give you... Well, I'll give you... Well, oh, yeah, because I, I forgot. It's which, I've said which of the following is most played. So what I'll do is I'll give you I'll give you two two guesses to get it. And if you if you don't get it then, then I'll let you have the multiple choice. So you get two guesses for the two points. Okay. And Sam Man, I would imagine, is number one. Correct. For two points. <laughs> <laughs> Okay, question number four. Released in 1983, what was the name of Metallica's first album? Oh, it was such an awful album, that one, actually. I really didn't enjoy it. It was uh, it had on the cover just a hammer in a pool of really fake blood. Proper metal. <laughs> it was called Kill All. <laughs> it, it is Kill Em All was Metallica's first album. Question number five. Metallica's fifth studio album was self-titled, but is affectionately known by what colour? Uh, well, it was it's the, it's the Black Album, the self-titled Black Album. Correct. The Black Album. Often counted as Metallica's pinnacle of, of their career, but I actually prefer their, their next two albums, which are often considered their worst in their career, but I think they were, they were the best, the, the two that came just after that one. <laughs> Okay, question number six. So in, in the first question, you correctly said that James Hetfield was one of the founder members of the band. Uh, the One of the other founder members of the band is Lars Ulrich. But what instrument does Lars play? Oh, he's a drummer. He is a drummer, which I have it on great authority from a professional drummer friend of mine. He's often very much not in time. Right <laughs> <laughs> away with it, I think. <laughs> drums is correct for another two points question number seven in 2013 metallica broke a world record for music performance but what was the world record oh i've got no idea i'll have to take your multiple choice there i think some okay so did they perform a song every hour of every day for a week did they perform on every continent over the course of a year did they perform a whole 10-song gig blindfolded or did they have the most number of air guitar players present at a single gig? Oh, that would be amazing. I hope it's the last one, but I'm going to go with the second one, the continent one. Correct. For one point. And it was in 2013. It, the only continent which they had to go to was Antarctica. Ah, and they played a concert in Antarctica. They did a, uh, a concert in Antarctica in association with coca-cola wow gosh what the like with the christmas things and everything the red santa and <laughs> i don't know about that oh imagine playing the guitar with in the antarctica how do you even do that that's like must have some kind of tech like weird hot wire tech or something to stop your fingers freezing off how do you do that? <laughs> yeah true enough question number eight what is metallica's longest song clocking in at nine minutes and 57 seconds oh i think i almost know this but i think i'm gonna go with the multiple choice because i'll i'll no i'm gonna I'm, i think it's orion i'll let you have the multiple choice options because everyone everyone gets one mulligan okay. so you've got your mulligan <laughs> now so is it a master and puppets is it b suicide and redemption is it c fate to black or is it d the day that never comes Oh, I think out of those, it's Master of Puppets. It's quite a long song. It's Suicide and Redemption is the correct answer. Question number nine. Which album is a compilation album 
uh, comprised entirely of cover songs. Oh gosh, yeah, this is during their dark days. What was that called? Oh man, what was that called? No, I'm going to have to go with your multiple choice. I'll definitely know it. Can I just shout out as soon as it comes along? You can. Is it A, Garage Inc? That one. Is it B? Yeah, correct. <laughs> correct. <laughs> Last question, question number 10. Which song starts with the lyrics? End of passion play, crumbling away. I'm your source of self-destruction. Veins that pump with fear, sucking darkest clear leading on your death's construction <laughs> I felt like I needed to do at least one lyrical question uh, oh, that's Master of Puppets it is Master of Puppets and that is the end of the quiz and uh, Paul Sellers you have, you've got a final score of 14 out of 20 which I think is a, Respect- a pretty respectable score hey, lovely well thank you Sam that was great fun I enjoyed that <laughs> No, no problem at all. And that only leaves us to give our uh, huge uh, thanks to Dr. Paul Sellers, uh, consultant uh, in uh, general medicine, stroke medicine and geriatric medicine. Uh, Paul, it's been an absolute pleasure having you on the show today. And it's great fun. I can't wait to come back, Sam. Thank you. And listeners, that is the end of uh, another show here on the Pre-Paces podcast. So if you really want to help the show out, please do like, follow, subscribe to the show or leave a five-star review wherever you listen to your podcasts. We always love to hear from you. Feel free to get in touch on our Twitter. It's at Prepaces Podcast or via the website, which is prepacespodcast.com. And as ever, if you really want to go above and beyond and support the show directly, it's buymeacoffee.com slash prepacespodcast. But for now, we are just about out of time. Thank you so much for listening, and we will see you next time on the Prepaces Podcast. <laughs>